Father, we just bow our hearts and our heads in your beautiful presence tonight. And Lord, we agree wholeheartedly with that song. Oh Lord, how we need you. Lord, we have gathered together this week to talk and share our understanding from your word of uh, this great commission and your glorious plan. And yet, Lord, for whatever bits and pieces and components of this we know and understand, we know, God, that we are nothing and that we are wholly and completely reliant on you for everything. Lord, you're our righteousness, you're our holiness, you're our strength, our power, our victory. Everything, Lord, that is positive and wonderful and glorious is just Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, may we be humbled in your very presence tonight. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride. Forgive us, Lord, for our stubbornness. Forgive us, Lord, for our ears that aren't ready to hear. Lord, we don't want to waste any of this precious life that you've given us. You told us, Father, to number our days and apply our heart to wisdom. And we know that, Lord, every day that we breathe on this earth is a gift from you. And, Lord, we want to we give ourselves to you afresh and anew tonight, Father. If you could just take this body that you have created and you've made, and we offer it back to you, the rightful owner of it, Lord, and use us, Lord, in any way that you see fit, in a way that's great, in a way that seems minimal, Lord, it doesn't matter to us. As long, Lord, as we are fulfilling your design and why you made us. Thank you, Lord, for this church and this church family. Thank you, God, for what you're doing here, not only in saving people and adding people to your church, but the way that you are leading your church, this assembly, the way you're communicating to them your plan and your desire. And I pray, Lord, that this church family will just let you be the head of your church and they will be willingly um, subjected to you and your leadership. So, Lord, we're going to gather together one more time tonight to sort of put a cap on our, our days together. Thank you for the way that you've been leading. Thank you for your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that this final evening um, would glorify you in all things. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right. Where shall we... Yo, let's go to Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. Um, I had several people ask me last night where they could get a copy of this book. And you can't get this book because they're all in Fiji. We printed them all up. They all went to Fiji. But the, the author of this book, Bruce Malone, um, they printed the exact same book with a different cover. Um, this is a book with pink and hands with pearls. And they found that boys in America didn't like to hold a pink book. And in Fiji, pink's a color that guys are okay with. Um, so it's, this is called Pearls in Paradise. It's a special edition, was made for Fiji. They've done another edition called Explore the Earth. And it's a different cover. It's the, the content on the inside is identical. The cover is different. And I, Brother Bruce, who uh, authored the book, he said he's got a few thousand copies in his warehouse. He's selling them for $7 uh, 
a piece, which is nothing plus shipping. So if you want one of these, perhaps Password, they could let get a number somehow, and I could just get a case of them sent here for those who want it. So if you communicate that, I'll get a case sent. Your kids would absolutely love a copy of this um, book, and I think you'll be blessed by it. <laughs> the, the adults are, we want a copy of this book. Oh, yeah. There's some great stories in, he, in here. I, I love the story. There's a, a few different times to talk about bees. Uh, Harvard University did a, an experiment with honeybees and how they find their food. So they had a beehive, and they put the food source, I'm, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, like 50 feet from the beehive, and they calculated how long it took the bees to get from the beehive to where the food source was. And then the next day, they, they put it 50 feet further, and they wanted to find out how much longer it would take them to find the food source, and it was just, just a little bit longer. And then the third day, they put it another 50 feet, and I, I'm getting the numbers wrong, but something like on the fourth day, when they went to move the food source, the bees were already there waiting for the honey. They had already calculated the movement of the food source and beat them to it. So next time somebody says you have a bee brain, hey, they're very smart. Beautiful design of God. There's just so much neat stuff inside this. Uh, you, you read about a fish with a cloaking device. Fish that can disappear, the cloaking device. Anyway, enough promo for that book. Acts chapter number 14, verse 27. I would like to balance two truths tonight, and I want to be very honest with you about how this mission will work. So let me just state it at the outset. Every bit of success in getting the gospel to the world is a miracle of Almighty God. And I know that because we live in a generation where millions of dollars, manpower, and assets are being thrown at missions, and we're not getting the job done. All of our Bible colleges, all of our mission boards, all of our faith promise, all of our you name it, we're not getting the job done. So it requires more than energy, than money, than manpower. It requires God, like God has to do the work. So it's not what you do, it's what God does through you. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. It is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So it's what God does through you. You're a vessel, don't forget that. Your vessel. It's not the work that you're doing for God. It's the work that God is doing through you. It's God doing it through you. Yeah, you're a, you're a co-laborer with God in that you get to be the vessel that God uses. But you're like a hammer. You, you're useless unless a carpenter puts you in its hand. So God will use you to do it. But if God's not using you, whatever you're doing is just like a hamster spinning around in a wheel. So it's not how much you give, it's not how much you preach, it's not how many miles you walk, it's not how much energy, it's not how much effort, it's whether God is using you. And the way you will know is because God is using you. There's a whole lot of people that want God to use them, and God is not using them. They're putting time, energy, effort, and resources, and there's no result. You know, Haggai talks about 
you know, you're, you're, you're putting money in a bag with holes in it. You have sown much and you have taken little. And a lot of times that's what our modern work has been like. We're doing all kinds of work, all kinds of energy, all kinds of effort, and it's not producing anything. Because if God doesn't do it and if God doesn't use you, then nothing happens. So it's the doing is of God. But at the same time, it will cost you everything. You will have to put all your energy to this. All of your resources. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. What thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. So you're going to have to put all your energy, all your strength, all your resources, all of your life. You'll have to put everything you are into it. And yet without God, it means nothing. Right? Because God doesn't need you. Like you're not helping God out with anything. And yet God says, you're going to have to give it all to me. Um, I kind of feel like it's God saying, I gave this example recently. Uh, there's a massive hole, right? And uh, God says, let's you and me fill this hole together. And so you bring a grain of sand and you drop it in the hole. And God brings a dump truck and he fills the hole. And God says, great job. Look what we did together. Yeah, but God, God will still make you put your, your peace in and everything that you have. That's the way it works. And, and so when it's done, what God does is beyond you. Don't ever steal the glory from God. Because when God begins to do it, honestly, the things that God does, what God does through you, what God does with you, it will even amaze you what God is doing. Don't steal that glory and act like you know what you're doing. Don't act like you're brilliant or anything like that. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And when God doesn't, it doesn't exalt man. It exalts God himself. So a few verses here, Acts 14, 27. They have finished the first missionary journey. And they've come back to report to the church at Antioch. And in verse 27, it says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them. Notice, this is what God did with us. You do understand that God could do it without us. Like, God's not weak if we don't participate. Like, God's always strong. He could do anything. Yet, he has chosen us to be a co-laborer with him. Right? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible. So it's going to be powerful. So they rehearsed what God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And I, I, want, to, I want to talk a little bit tonight about the concept of the open door. Right? They came back, they, they had laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. And when, when they sent them away, they just went to the work and they came back all that time later, and they said, you will not believe what God did with us and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Too much of what gets reported in the area of missions isn't worthy of God. 
a, a missionary will come back and say, praise God, we built a $100,000 building in this area. And we thank God for the 50 churches that gave $2,000 a piece that made us build that building. And we go, wow, to, the, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. But, but you know, Mormons build buildings and Catholics build buildings and Pentecostals build buildings and lost people build buildings and Hindus build buildings. I mean, just because a building was built doesn't necessarily mean this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Right? There are things that we can do that God doesn't have to be part of. But there are doors that only God can open. And I promise you this. If we are able to get the gospel to the entire world in the next 20 years, we will get together and we will rehearse the things that God did that nobody else can describe. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse number 8. Hadassah, would you bring my phone up? I've got something on there I need to read in a minute. I forgot to bring it up here. 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 8. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse number 8. Paul said, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. And that, that when you start putting all the pieces together at Ephesus, that's where a lot of the wolves were. And yet God opened a door. And what was the effectual door that God opened to him? Remember, he was in the school of Tyrannus. And, and somehow whatever God was doing in the school of Tyrannus was multiplying throughout all of Asia. And he spent two solid years at that school until all Asia heard the word of the Lord. And Paul describes that as a great door and effectual that was open unto me. Paul didn't say I had this wonderful strategy. He just said there was an open door in front of me and I took it. Second Corinthians chapter two. Second Corinthians chapter two. Verse number 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because of Titus. But what was open to him? A door. Colossians chapter number one. Colossians chapter number one. And verse number four. I apologize. Colossians chapter number four. <clears throat> Colossians chapter number four. Verse number two. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So what did Paul ask the church to pray for him as a missionary? An open door. You ever read missionary prayer requests? You know, pray that we can get a roof on this building. 
pray that we can get new tires for the van, pray that we can get, pray that we can get, pray that we can get. Let me, let me tell you the prayer every missionary needs. You get to this country, you get to these people, and why are we there? What is the main thing that we want to do? We want to speak, right? What, what, what do you do when there's no open door for you to speak? What, what good is it for you to be there if there's nobody to speak to you? So you know what you need to pray for? You need to pray for unusual open doors to speak. And then, of course, Revelation 3, 8, you don't have to turn there. God says, I have set before you an open door, and no man can close it. Um, on, on one of our last trips to Zambia, there was a man in our, in our home church who, um, a, a lovely man, we call him Rerun, Brother Mike uh, Rerakowski. He's a, a military vet, and he, he's, a, he's a quiet teddy bear of a guy. And he, he wanted to go on a mission trip with us. And he said, you know, I'd like God to use me. He said, I've heard your stories. I've heard other people's stories. I wonder if God could use me as well. And you know, he's not an outgoing personality. He's never the guy that's up in the pulpit in front of people. He's the quiet guy at the, at the back. Got lots to say, but not publicly, not in front of people. So we went to um, Zambia. We were in Lusaka, the capital city, and we were just doing street evangelism. So I'm, I'm sitting down on the street, and I'm uh, sharing the gospel with a young man who believes baptism is required to save. And so I'm, I'm going through the scriptures with him. He's giving me scriptures back. I give him scriptures. And then finally he's convinced that you, you don't need baptism to get saved. And then he asked me this question. This was, this was so beautiful. He looked at me with a confused look, and he said, what then must I do to be saved? That was his exact words. What then must I do to be saved? And I'm like, there's another guy in the Bible who asked that exact same question. And I took him to the Philippian um, uh, jailer. What must I do to be saved? And what was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Well, while I'm witnessing to this guy, um, brother Mike Rewakowski, brother Rerun, he, he's standing and he's kind of like my bodyguard down there and he's handing out tracks to people as they go. But you know, he's not really having any conversations. And suddenly there is a lady standing next to him and, and she is like amazed about what I'm sharing to this man. And she looks at him realizing he's probably with me because we're both white. And she goes, who is that man? And she goes, oh, he goes, that's my pastor. We came from the, from the U.S. We're out here. And she goes, he's preaching the gospel. Like, he's preaching the real gospel, salvation by grace. Like, that's the actual gospel. Nobody preaches that gospel. And she says, I, I need to talk to him. And, and Brother Eran says, why? And she said, well, she goes, I'm the program director for three national television stations, and I control all the religious programming that goes on around the country, and I need that gospel preached on our television all around Zambia. And, and Brother Rerun, he says, well, he says, we're just visitors in the country, and we're leaving in a few days, but we're working with a missionary here on the ground. His name's David Ray. That's Brother Jacob Ray's dad. I could give you his number. She says, so gets the number. That lady calls Brother David Ray and says, do you preach the same gospel that that guy was preaching? He said, yes. And next week, Brother David Ray was on national television preaching to millions of people across Zambia. And Brother Rerun, just quiet, old, little, non-in-front-of-people Rerun, was the facilitator of this great transaction. And he comes back and he's like, 
We were in a city with three million people. And God put me between you when that lady would walk by. And I just facilitated this missionary preaching to millions of people on national television. And you know what he went? He's like, God opened the door for me. God opened the door for me. Now, Rerun didn't go back and say, guys, I had this great plan. I went into the city of 3 million people, and I decided I would stand over here because the director of all these national television stations would come by me, and I planted Pastor Corey there to preach the gospel. It was this wonderful, great setup. No, it wasn't. He just happened to be where God wanted him to be at the right place at the right time, and God did what God did, but he used somebody to do it. And you know what you walk away saying? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Who does God use? Well, he uses ordinary people. In fact, all God actually has is normal, ordinary people. We get the idea that there's some great men of God out there. And look, the guys who think they're great men of God, they've just learned how to put on the persona. You know, to be a great man of God, you've got to change your accent a little bit, change your stature just a little bit. Walk up the pulpit and say, bless God, brethren, it's good to be here tonight. With all of you, bless God. All you have to do is change your voice a little bit, get a little bit big of a church, build a bigger building than somebody else, and boom, there you are, the big man of God. Then you can get the other guys. They'll invite you to your club, and you can be in a circuit going around the country telling everybody you're a great man of God. Look, there are no great men of God. There's a great God of men. And the one that's great is God. And remember that. You know what God will do, though? When God exalts you, God's actually exalting himself, and he's just giving you a bigger platform to let God shine. But you're just an ordinary person. That's all God has. And, and that, should, that should help you not be intimidated to volunteer yourself for God because maybe you think, I'm not as eloquent as this guy or I'm not as organized as this guy. Hey, look, you're looking here. The king of this organization is right here. Your pastor and I, in normal circumstances, would not be good friends at all because he is like hyper-organized and I am... My pastor actually said it to me this way. He said, bro, Corey, he he said these exact words. He says, if it was not for the seat of your pants and the last minute, you would not get anything done in this world. And I'm like, pastor, I'm a crisis manager. All right. You get into the last minute and a crisis, your, your pastor will be paralyzed by the crisis and I'll fly into the rescue. Everything's under control. But you give me a year to plan anything and I'm just like... Call me five minutes before it's time to go and I can get things going and get it ready. And we need each other. We need each other. We we need each other. God will forgive him for being organized and God will help my slop and it'll all still be done to the glory of God. You see, if God doesn't open a door, it doesn't matter how hard you try. If God doesn't open a door, it doesn't matter what strategies you employ. God has to open the door. It has to be the Lord's doing. And it's God's nature to do it, but you've got to be humble because God doesn't always do it the way that you would want it to be done. Miracles. Let me just share a few with you. God called me to be a missionary when I was 19. I had gone on a summer mission trip to Fiji. And while I was there, God did some unusual things, and I believe God spoke to me and, and told me, I want you to stay in Fiji. I don't want you to go back to Bible college. 
I want you basically to go back, pack your bags, get your things in order, and move back to Fiji. And that just sounded really ridiculous to me. And um, how do you find God's will? Have you ever wondered that? Like, how, how would you know? Like, like when God spoke to me, I want you not to go back to Bible college, and I want you to start being a missionary now at 19. You've been saved for three years. One semester of Bible college. You're not married, right? All the strike, strike, strike. But the national pastor that I was working with, I told him, I believe God's called me to be a missionary to Fiji. I'm going to go back and finish Bible college. I'm going to do an internship. I'm going to do a reputation. And like 10 years later, I'll be back in the country. And we were sitting down one evening, and he said to me, he said, bro, he said, I don't think you should go back to Bible college. I think you should come here and work with me. Just come work with me. Come work with the youth. Help me put on a youth camp, and I'll, I'll finish training you. And I'm thinking, that's, a, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That doesn't happen. You can't do it that way. That's just not. I hadn't even been around Baptist that long, but I already knew that's not the way it gets done. And so he said to me, he said, would you pray about it? Now, that's a trick question right there. Because when someone says pray about it, what are you going to say? No. So I told him that I would pray about it. And so I, I went up into this, uh, up above the church into a room. And before I prayed about it, I did, I did know this. You should not pray a feigned prayer. Like, if you don't mean it, don't pray it. So if I was going to ask God, Lord, would you want me to drop out of Bible college and move to Fiji at 19 as a single missionary, like, I shouldn't ask that if I wouldn't do it if he said yes. Even though I knew God would not say yes to something like that, I did tell the Lord, God, I know it's probably ridiculous of me even to pray this, but truly, God, if you tell me to do it, I will do it. So I prayed, Lord, do you want me to drop out of Bible college and come to Fiji and work with Brother Save and run, run the youth and do a youth camp? And I didn't hear anything. And I told the Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need more than a feeling on this one. Like, this is, this is too big for just a gut feeling. But, but then I, be, I began to wonder, how would you really know? Like, how would you really know if God told you like that? Well, I hadn't taken that class in Bible college yet, so I didn't know. So I heard a guy in chapel somewhere said, God will give you a verse. Like, God will give you a verse. If you're praying about God's will, God will give you a verse. Now, I didn't know if that was good theology, if that was bad theology. Is that the way God works? Um, you'll find a lot of my early years of ministries, well, I don't know. I've heard three opinions. I'll try all three, and whichever one works will be my doctrine. That's how I, I don't want to think that more. So, I said, okay, I'm not going to just do the random point my finger. I knew that would not be good. Um, but I thought, I'm going to just keep reading in my devotions where I've been reading. I'm going to read the next chapter. And God, could you just, in the next chapter, tell me, do I stay in Fiji and preach, or do I go back and finish Bible college? And I was reading Luke chapter number 9. And I got to the end of chapter number 9, and you might be familiar with that, but the, um, this man came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That guy seemed to have disappeared. Jesus said to another man, follow me. He said to another man, follow me. Do you remember what they said? One said, let me first go back and bid them farewell that are at home. One said, let me bury my father. And Jesus gave two statements to them. 
he said, Let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. No man having put his hand at the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I got done reading that, and I'm like, whoo, that sounded like a verse. Like, like I'm telling you, at that moment, I knew what God, like that was God. God, God told me, and it scared me. Because the verse I was looking for said something like this. Corey, don't be stupid. Go back and finish Bible college and grow up. Of course I don't use people like this. That's what I was looking for. So it shocked me that I got a verse that told me to go that way. But then I, but then I was thinking, was that really God? What, was that a ver- Was that God? Now, in my heart, I knew it was God, but I'm like, was that really God? And I'm like, Lord, was that you? Um, and then I remembered a story in the Bible about Gideon who'd put out a fleece, and it came back exactly the way he said, and he's like, Lord, just to make sure that was you, can I put it out again, and then it'll, the other one will be wet, and the other one will be dry. So I thought, I'm going to put out a fleece. Now, I didn't know if New Testament Christians are allowed to put out a fleece or not, because I also hadn't taken that class in Bible college. So I said, Lord, I don't know if this is legitimate or not, but I'm going to put out a fleece before you. So this was my fleece. Now, remember, I'm 19. I have a semester of Bible college under my belt. I have never preached anywhere in America except at the L.A. Rescue Mission to stoned and drunk guys down at the the Emanuel Baptist Rescue Mission, a few junior churches. I said, Lord, Brother Save wants me to lead his youth and to run a youth camp. I don't know anything about youth camps. I got saved at one. I surrendered to God at the other. And, and here I am. So I said, Lord, if this was you, I want you to get me invited this summer to preach at a youth camp back in America. Now, this is July. It's July. There's up till August the rest of the summer. And now that I'm more familiar with the Baptist world, I've since learned you don't invite first semester Bible college students who've never preached anywhere and only been saved three years to be your youth camp speaker. Right, Brother Casey? So I figured, well, that's that. I prayed, I closed my Bible, and I went home. I am staying with Brother Savi Sakelli, who's the, the national pastor, my very good friend. Two or three o'clock in the morning, I get a knock on my door. Hey, brother. What? Hey, there's a phone call from you. Some lady from America wants to speak to you. Now, these are the days where there's no cell phones. Calling overseas is hard. The international lines didn't always connect. $3 a minute. How did anybody even know where I was or what house I was at to find a phone number to call me? And I get on the phone, and this lady says, are you Corey Mears? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, well, my name is Ruth Rose, and my husband is the associate pastor at Bible Baptist Church in Puyallup, Washington, and he's also our youth director. She goes, this is going to sound strange to you, but we have a youth camp coming up here in a few weeks, and we had an evangelist scheduled to speak at our youth camp. Something happened. He can't come, and we need a camp speaker, and my husband asked me to call you and ask if you would come be our camp speaker. (laughs) Who knows me? I don't know anybody. I've never preached anywhere. I said, ma'am, when is your camp? She told me the dates. It was the week after my tickets were to get back in Fiji, uh, back from Fiji to the U.S. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll come preach your, your youth camp. I will. And I hung up the phone, not knowing what scared me worse. 
that I just agreed to preach at a youth camp. Or I heard from God. Let me tell you something about our God. Do I think that's the method by which you find God's will? I don't know. But I know that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And we have a great big God. And if your heart is absolutely sincere before God, God can open the mouth of a donkey. He can ride it with a hand on a wall. God's got like all kinds of ways and means. When he wants to make you know something, God, even in your ignorance, even in your immaturity with a sincere heart, God knows how to speak to you. Well, so that's that. I go back home, and um, I tell my pastor, I de-enroll from Bible college. Whoo, that was humbling. I go back to Bible college, and the, the dean of men meets me at a Sunday evening prayer meeting, and he's an old Vietnam vet, and he finds me at the prayer meeting. Corey, what are you doing? I'm going to... Fiji is a missionary, sir. And he goes, you can't do that. I said, thank you, sir. People looking at me like I got some kind of plague. And I'm no, I'm no, it sounds as stupid to me as it does to you. Trust me. I get back up to Washington. I tell my pastor. And I, everything I just shared to you, I shared to my pastor. And he looked at me with those eyes that are like, And he said to me, he said, Corey, he said, are you ready? And I thought to myself, well, if I say, yep. Well, how presumptuous and arrogant would that be? And if I say, no, he's going to say, why are you going? So there was no good answer to that question. So I just said, Pastor, I said, I can't answer that question. I can only tell you what I believe God said to me, and I'll, and I'll leave it with you. But I, I, I looked in his eyes, and he didn't have any peace, any confidence that that was God. So I went home, and I said, okay, God, I believe you've spoken to me. I have no doubt about what you said. And my plan was to come back August for the camp and fly back on the 1st of September. That, I mean, that's how sure I was it was God's will. But I said, Lord, I did read a verse in the Bible that said, how shall they preach except they be sent? And it appears to me you only send missionaries through the church. So, Lord, if that was you, I need you to talk to my pastor. And I'm not saying anything else to him. Because I need to know that I didn't mistake you on all this, that that was actually God. So I thought, I'm not going to keep bringing this up to him. I'm going to wait. So August went by, September went by, October went by, November went by, and I am dying. I went and got a job again. I'm flipping hamburgers going, I should be in Fiji. I should be in Fiji. Around the first Sunday of November, it done preaching in the morning service. And my pastor says, uh, Brother Corey, I need, to, I need to see you in my office after the service this morning. Now, I don't know what it is about your pastor saying, I need to see you in the office after the service. I'm just like, like, what did I do? Like, I can't even breathe right now, you know? So I get into his office, and my pastor is sitting there with his Bible open, and he is weeping. And he's reading the story of God telling Abraham to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. And he said, Corey, I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. God's told me to die to my dream to you and send you to Fiji. I have to send you. And I'm like, thank you. I flew up to Alaska. I work for my dad. 
I earned enough money to buy a one-way ticket to Fiji. December 1st, 1995, I bought a one-way ticket to Fiji to go be a missionary to Fiji. Now, if any of you have ever traveled internationally to a foreign country, do you know whether or not you can fly to that country on a one-way ticket? Nope, you cannot. The only way you can fly into a foreign country on a one-way ticket is if you have a work permit or a visa to be there. Otherwise, when you get down to L.A. and you try to get on there, they'll ask you for a return ticket. If you don't have a return ticket, they'll make you buy one. At the counter, they will not let you into that country without a return ticket. I didn't know that, so I just went with a one-way ticket. As I didn't have any mission board to tell me what to do and had to rely on God. You know, so I... That's a whole other story. I'll leave that one alone. So... I put my one-way ticket down, and that lady gives me my boarding pass, puts me on the plane. Now, I don't know that a miracle just happened right there, because I don't know the rules yet. I don't know the laws yet. It, this was years later. I look back and go, Lord, that was a miracle. Because when I learned the rules, I'm like, how did that lady let me on the airplane with a one-way ticket? But you know, God does that to people. He, like, messes their brains up, so they just, on you go, right in there. So I fly into Fiji. I'm the happiest man on earth because I am going where God called me to be. I get off in Fiji, and I get into immigration. And as I'm going through the immigration line, the immigration officer says, Hey, welcome to Fiji. Why are you here? Now, the one thing you do not say when you're going to a foreign country is what I said. I said, I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he starts going through my passport, looking around, and then he said, uh, can I have your work permit, please? I said, my what? He said, your work permit. I said, oh, no, I didn't come here to work. I, I don't have a job. Nobody's paying me. I'm not working. I just came here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, no, you can't come preach. I don't, if they pay you or if they don't pay you, it doesn't matter. You have to have a work permit before you can come do this in your country. Do you know what Fiji immigration law is? You have to be deported. That's what they do. They should have put me on the next plane and sent me right back. I didn't know that, though, because I don't know anything yet. I'm just there. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the immigration officer, he looks at me. Normally, they stamp your passport for four months as a visitor. And he said, okay, I'm going to stamp your passport for two weeks. You go down to immigration in Suva, and you get all your work permit stuff situated. And he let me in the country. That's miracle number two that I didn't appreciate at the time because I didn't know it was a miracle. Well, I, I, get into, I get into Fiji, we, we put my work permit application in, and they give me an extension. They give me a two-month extension for all of this. And then Brother Savi Sakeli, who was my pastor and mentor at that time, his wife got ill with something, and he has to leave the country. And he said, Brother Corey, I need you to pastor the church for the next three months while I'm gone. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not here to pastor a church or anything yet, like youth camp, youth, and training. He said, God brought you here for such a time as this. So he leaves the country. Now, I've preached seven sermons at this time in, in my whole life. I've got seven now to my name, and I've preached them all in that church in the time I've been there. He left on a Saturday. He gave, uh, he gave me notice, one day notice that he's leaving. He said, you need to preach three times on Sunday. And we're doing a youth camp the next week. I was supposed to preach one time each night. He was supposed to preach two times in the daytime session. He said, brother, I'm going to need you to preach all of them, which means I had to do 15 sessions during the week and preach three times the next Sunday. If you add all of that together, that's 21 sermons that I had to preach, and I had one day notice that he was leaving. Another story for another time, how I got through that week. 
couple weeks later, I get a letter from immigration. Well, Brother Savi got a letter from immigration. This is what the letter said. Dear Mr. Sakelli, please tell Corey Mears to leave the country and to apply for his work permit from his home country. Because guess what immigration law is in Fiji? You are not allowed to apply for a work permit while you're there on a visitor's visa. You have to actually leave the country. Well, I've got a big problem now because I only bought a one-way ticket to Fiji. I didn't bring any money with me when I came, and the $270 a month of support that I was supposed to receive had got lost in the mail for three months. So I went with three months with zero support, so I couldn't have bought a ticket to leave if I wanted to. Now, that same day that I got that letter, that morning in my devotions, I had read where Hezekiah and Israel, uh, Judah, had got that letter from Senate Chair, a really nasty letter. Don't let Hezekiah make you believe in your God. I've smashed every God in the world, and I'm going to smash you next. You know. And so Hezekiah gets that letter. He doesn't know what to do. What does Hezekiah do with the letter? He goes down to the altar of God of the temple, and he spreads it out before God, and he prays. So I took that letter. I went downstairs to the church, down to the altar, and I spread it out, and I said, God, I'm just like Hezekiah. I got no idea what to do. Now, the Sunday previous to that, a visitor had come to our church, and um, he was in, a, in a, a black car with tinted windows, and he was dressed really well. And, you know, I'm a young preacher. I'm 20. I'm on fire for God, and I got very little content. So when, you, when you're on fire for God and you have very little content, you yell a lot. Like you just, you just yell a lot and you say really bold things. And so that Sunday I was preaching on, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, the mighty man in his strength, or the rich man in his riches. And when I got to the rich man in his riches, of course, I haven't had a check now for a couple of months. I've got no money. And so, man, I am mad at rich people on that day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you rich people think you own the world and you think that God needs you. Well, God doesn't need your money. And I'm just like hammering rich people. Well, the service gets over. Everybody goes. And uh, one of the elders in the church, Brother Bridge Subaidas, he comes up. He says, Brother Corey, do you, do you know who that, uh, that visitor was there today? No. He said, he's the minister for finance in the Fiji government. And I'm like, they have pastors in the government for the finance department? He said, no, minister's like a cabinet minister. Well, we'd call it a secretary of finance in the U.S. He's Fiji's first self-made millionaire. He's the richest man in Fiji. And I should have preached a different sermon on that day. <laughs> so, okay. Well, in the middle of the week, I get that letter. The next Sunday, that man comes back again. He comes back again. And that Sunday, I preach on all the tithe belongs to the Lord. Bring you all the tithe into the store. I'm just kidding. I am totally kidding. I did not. I did not. I don't know what I preach. But after the service, I've never met this guy. I've never talked to him. He's a second-time visitor in the church. He gets up. He walks right up to me and says this to me. He says, Corey, do you have a work permit? Who walks up to you and asks if you have a work permit? And I said, uh, no, sir, I don't. And he said, why not? And I said, well, I've applied for one. And I got this letter from immigration. I happened to have it in my coat pocket. And I said, I had this letter from immigration. And he said, let me see it. And he reads it. He folds it up and he says, leave it with me. And he walks out the door and he disappears. I don't even know this guy. And he's taken my only copy of the letter. I don't even have a photocopy of it or anything. And the next Sunday... He comes, he misses a service, he walks up 
to the church. He comes to me. He hands me the letter. He says, Corey, go down to immigration on Tuesday. Your work permit has been approved, and it's waiting for you. And then he doesn't come back to church anymore. You want to know what that is? You want to know what that is? That's my God. Like, that's your God. Now, do I think you should walk up into any country and never do your paperwork and just walk up and say, I'm here to preach the gospel and expect God to do? No, you're not intentionally doing bad and wrong things at all. It just means every ounce of what we're doing is a miracle of God. Everything that we do is because God is good and God is glorious and God is powerful. I didn't engineer any of that. I was in my very, my simplicity, and I was, I was simple. My knowledge of God was very simple. But I would, here's the one thing that I did have. I would do anything God wanted, anywhere, anytime. And in that simplicity, God says, now, Corey, I'm going to carry you. I'm going to teach you along the way because you've got a lot of things to learn. But I'm going to carry you along the way. Sometimes the problem is as we know more and as we learn more, we get more confident in who we are and what we are. And then we don't mean to, but we put God on the side and we plan everything out. And then it's like, Lord, bless me as I, Lord, here's my plan. Would you enter into my plan? And God just says, nope. You just let me know when you're done scratching out your plans. See if you can invite me into it. We have a great and a mighty God. This book here, Pearls in Paradise. Bruce Malone had come to Fiji. We had done a couple creation science seminars. We used it as a tool to start a church in the capital of city, uh, right on the University of the South Pacific. And, and Bruce came to me and he said, a, a, a predecessor to this book called Inspired Evidence, he said, you know what? I'd like to send you a container of 17,000 of these. He said, do you think you could arrange some public schools and we could give these out to kids at schools and do some assemblies and maybe get in there? And I thought, I think we could do that. So he goes, spends his own money and prints 17,000 copies. This was the predecessor to our big project here. And this container arrives and he says, there's this date. I'm going to come, a couple other creation scientists. And, and if you can arrange all the schools, I said, leave all the schools to me. I'll get you schools. Now, I am working my tail off to try and arrange schools, and I'm getting nowhere. So the largest school system in, in Fiji are the Methodist schools. The Methodist schools, by the way, they're all public schools. If you're a Christian school, you're still a public school. The only thing the Christian churches do is they put the principal there, they own the property, they have the school management, but the Fiji Ministry of Education appoints the teachers, appoints the curriculum. So you're all public schools. So a friend of mine was going in to see the Secretary of Education for Methodist Schools, and I said, can I go with you? Because I want to meet him and tell him a little bit about what we're doing and see if I can't get into all of his high schools around the, the Suva area. So I, I go in, I meet him, and he says, sure, Pastor, no problem. What I'm going to do, I'm going to send you, my secretary is going to send you an email with all the email addresses of all the principals of the secondary schools in the greater Suva area, and you can do it. I said, wonderful, sir. Thank you. I look forward. Well, as happens in Fiji, and I'm waiting for that email, I'm waiting for that email, I'm waiting for that email. It doesn't come. So I call, I call. And I say, hey, sir, this is, uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know what? I'll talk to my secretary. I'm going to get you that email with all those lists of schools. Wonderful. Thank you. This goes on for two months. Two months I have, because I can't go to a principal without going through their secretary of education to get that. I need that from him first. I need the letter from him that I can use when I contact all those principals. So we're now a week and a half away from Bruce Malone coming 
with all of his creation scientists to distribute the 17,000 books that he sent that are sitting here ready to go, and I have zero schools ready. So Monday, they're arriving on Saturday. Monday, I'm, I, I call the, I now I've got his cell phone, I call the Secretary of Education for Methodist Schools, and I say, hey, he calls me, he says, hello, Pastor, how are you? And I said, sir, I'm just wondering about those uh, um, things. And he said, hey, I'm in the Fiji Principal School Association a meeting, and I, uh, don't worry, I'm going to talk to the principals this week, and, and I'll get you the numbers, and we'll work something out. Uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. So tomorrow comes back, I don't hear anything. Wednesday comes, I don't hear anything. Thursday comes, I don't hear anything. And I am, bro, you would be, you, you would be like, absolutely dead. And I'm like, well, Lord's got something up his sleeve. All this kind of. So finally on Thursday, I call him, and, he, and he's like, uh, lunch, he said, he said uh, please, Pastor Mears, I'll call you at 3 o'clock as soon as we get out of these meetings. And I'm just like, what am I going to do? 3.30. I get an email from him, and the email is an itinerary for the next week for 5, 10, 15, 16 high schools. He has met with all the principals. He just said he was going to give me a list of all of them to call. He's given me three schools a day for the next two weeks, all over Suva, up to Singatoka, uh, 20,000 students, he's contacted each principal, each school were welcomed with a delegation, They've, they provide a morning tea or a lunch, and we went to, in the next two weeks, we went to almost 20,000 students, we got rid of all of those books, we had this seminar, so we go through this, and Bruce Malone's going, this is the most exciting thing that I've ever seen. So we, we go through this, and I mean, I am looking good right now. Okay, after this, we're going here, and then after that, we're going there, and then after that. So we get done with these two weeks, and we're having an assessment with the team, and this is what Bruce Malone says. He says, Corey, I want to tell you this. He said, I have been in the creation science world for years now. I've done stuff all over the world. I've done stuff in the U.S. I've done stuff on universities. I've done it in, in all these different countries. And he said, I have never been in a place where such preparation and such work and such organization has been done. This is absolutely the best organized thing that we've done. And I'm like, thank you, thank you, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, thank you for that. So, a year later when he came back, we, we went on to the Pearls Project uh, to do this in all the schools of Fiji. We came back and I said, Bruce, I want to tell you a story. So I told him the story, and he's like you. He is like a hyper-organized guy, and I'm telling him the story, and he's like, he's like, I am so glad you did not let me know any of this ahead of time. But you know, you know, I say, that's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. We went to Hindu schools. We were allowed to go into Hindu schools. And so we met with the priest, the priest of a Hindu school, and they were worried that we were going to preach the gospel. So they were like, well, we believe in God. We believe in science. We know there's a creator. So they got a council of their priests together, and I had to go give them this book to look at it. Now, in the very beginning of this book, it says God's only plan of salvation. And there's four pages that say Jesus Christ is the only way to everlasting life. There's no other God. There's no other name whereby we must be saved. And, and there's this whole plan of salvation that's in the beginning. And I'm like, we're done. We're not getting in, in, into the Hindu schools. So I, I give this book to their priest, and I kid you not, their priest 
They open up this book and they go, biology, paleontology, design. And guess which page is never opened? Those four pages in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ never open. And that uh, the Hindu priest said, this is suitable for the students of our school. You may come. And he said, but I, I don't want you preaching your Bible, and I, I don't want you converting the students. I said, so, so then we come. We, we, we get hundreds of students in this assembly hall in this Hindu school, and I've got my PowerPoint up there, and Genesis 1-1 is up there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, 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 and all of a sudden, the, the Hindu priests that are the management of that school, they're looking at that, and he comes up, he's, and he's calling me. And he said, I told you, no Bible, no Bible, no, no converting them to your religion. I said, oh, that's a, that's a scientific statement up there. That's, that's science up there. And he said, he said, what do you mean? He says, come up here. I said, in the beginning, that's time. God created, that's energy. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. That's time, energy, space, and matter. That's all science. And plus, I said, do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I believe in God. Do you believe God made everything? He said, yes, I believe God made. So it just says in the beginning, time, energy, space, and matter was made by God. I thought you believed that. He said, I do believe that. And he's like, okay, that one can stay up there. And then he walks away. I'm like, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. We may not have been able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I left a book behind with every one of them that when they open that up, they're going to read the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that is? That's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Well, in, in 1987, we had a coup in Fiji, and the, um, the military general, General Sitiveni Rambuka, overthrew the, the governor general, the queen, made Fiji an independent republic, um, he ruled Fiji. He became later on. He became the democratically elected prime minister. And the first few years that I was in Fiji, he was the prime minister. And then in um, 1999, he lost the general elections, and he basically went kind of into obscurity and was gone until just a few years ago. And just a few years ago, when we were still in Fiji, he kind of came out of his retirement from politics, came back into politics, and became the leader of the opposition in the Fiji government. And he had been repenting of the coup that he led in 1987. And the current Fiji government was becoming more secular. They were moving away from God in the public sphere. And he had this burden that Fiji became what it did because of Christianity, not because of, of modern politics. And somehow a lady in our church who's a distant relative of him, when I came back to Fiji four years ago, I'd already left and come back to the States. I let a mission team back there. And uh, she was one of my secretaries. She said, I've communicated with Mr. Rambuka, the leader of the opposition, and told him what we're doing in the public schools, and he wants to meet you. So on a Saturday morning, on a Saturday morning, we were invited by the former prime minister, now the leader of the opposition, to come to a Methodist men's prayer group meeting and talk to them about what we're doing in Fiji's public school with our creation science ministry and why we're doing it. Now, a lot of the men that were in that meeting are politicians as well. They're, they're, at that time, they're opposition. So I came in and I spent 30 minutes explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it and why Fiji 
why, why, why crime is rising with the youth and why drugs and why all these problems are coming because Fiji's forsaking its godly heritage. It was the gospel that brought Fiji from cannibalism and darkness to light. And, and so I, I did that. So afterwards, he met me. We had a conversation and he said, look, tomorrow night in our Methodist church, it was a pretty well-known Methodist church in the city. He said, um, the young people are running the service. He said, can I invite you to be our special speaker? I'm like, Sure. So that next day, I invited by him, went down, and I preached Fiji's history. I, I, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. And I, and I led them through their own history lesson about how the gospel came in and where it first entered, how cannibalism was overthrown and how righteousness came into a nation. And then I started describing why Fiji was falling and how this Western humanistic secularism was coming in and brainwashing them. And I'm like, don't follow us in the West. Let me tell you what's happening in the West as we have forsaken our foundation. I finished preaching that night and he met me out in the parking lot. And he said, would you pray for me? He said, I'm going to I'm going to run in the next elections and I would like another chance to be the prime minister. And he said, I led a revolution in 1987, and it was wrong. He said, I want to lead one more revolution. I'd like it to be a revolution of righteousness. Would you pray for me that I could get into power? And I, and I said, uh, absolutely. And then he said this to me. He said, would you help me with something? He said, I want creation to be in our schools. He said, if I get into power, would you be willing to help us get biblical creationism back into the public schools? And I said, yes, we would. That was years ago. So then last December, Fiji's going to elections, and my family were all looking at what's going to happen in Fiji. Now, prior to that, a friend of mine had written a, a, a book, and uh, that book talked about why Christians should rule in the nations of the earth, and I sent a copy to him. I wanted him to read it, but he never replied, never responded. Do you know how politicians are? You know, they meet you one day, they smile at you, shake your hand. They don't know who you are, where you are, what you were, anything. But he won the election. And on his inauguration night, he was sitting up in his office making an address to the nation. And he's got his desk and he's got his little bookshelf over there. And I, I'm looking on the bookshelf while he's giving his address to the nation. And I took a snapshot on my phone and I zoomed it up. And it was the book that I had sent him in the first position. And I thought, maybe he read that book. Well, in July of this year, our creation science team was back in Fiji. I wasn't able to go. And we asked for a meeting with the prime minister. He received our team into his office and he said, what can I do for you? And they reminded him of the conversation. They gave him a sample of beginning curriculum. And they said, sir, we would like to write the science curriculum for your entire high school as supplementary. So wherever evolution is being taught, we would like to put supplementary material to give the scientific creation answer to those particular things. And he said, granted and done. What's next? So do you understand how many nations in this world will let you in their national curriculum teach creation or evolution is being taught? You know how, you know how often that happens in the world? Almost never. You know what that is? Who can do that? God can do that. 
This is the Lord's doing. This is our God. You know what God wants? God wants the gospel to be preached to the whole world. Last week, we were in three different schools to give these books out, and we stood in front of several hundred students after saying, you know what? If Genesis 1-1 is a lie, which it's not, then John 3-16 would be a lie. But if Genesis 1-1 is true, so is John 3-16. And after talking about scientific creationism, we then have hundreds of students sitting there carefully explaining to them the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. The Ministry of Education just gave us a five-year permission. They said we can go back again to every high school because a whole new crop of students, and they're going to let us go to almost 200,000 high schoolers with this book to talk about Christian science. But what do we really want to talk about? We want to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's, that's just Fiji. Well, I already told you when we went to Zambia through some, some just amazing circumstances, we met the generals of the Zambian military. Those, those 19,000 Bibles that we sent in a container, they, were, they cleared customs through the Zambian military. The Zambian military and the Zambian police requested the Bibles. And I said, only if we get to personally deliver them and preach. We, we have, you have to assemble the people together and let us preach to them. The Zambian military said, we'll take you to every base in Zambia, a thousand soldiers at a time. You can preach the gospel and give Bibles to them. The Zambian police force has given us access to all 22,000 of their police officers. And they said, anywhere you go in Zambia, you contact the chaplain. They'll gather all the police families together, and you can preach to all of them. You know who opens doors to nations? God does. You say, eh. And I want to tell you where God wants to do that. He wants to do that everywhere on planet Earth. I spoke to a missionary who had been in Greece. I went on a, uh, on a Paul's missionary journeys years ago, and when I was in Thessalonica, I saw thousands of students. There's three major universities and thousands of students, and I wanted to know, are there any missionaries here in Thessalonica working amongst these thousands of students? So I met a missionary, a former missionary in Washington, and he said, brother, he said, any missionaries working in Greece are seeing about one convert a year. They're just like they were in Paul's days, always, you know, hearing some new thing, but never converting. But then something happened. I don't know if you paid attention to the news years ago, but there was mass migration of Muslim refugees up into Europe. You read about all that? Let me tell you what's happening in the refugee camps. In those refugees camps, Muslims are losing their faith. Because they have given their heart and life to Allah, to Islam, to the Koran. They followed it. They prayed five times a day. They kept all the laws. And what happened in their countries? War-torn. What happened to their homes? They're gone. And a lot of those Muslims that have had to migrate have lost their faith. They're sitting in those refugee camps. So the same missionaries that were seeing one convert a year started going down into the refugee camps where all these Muslims were, and they started preaching Christ to them. And guess what they were seeing in the refugee camps? About one convert a day amongst the Muslims. You think that God can reorder a mass migration of people? Did you know that the whole entire world is migrating to the United States of America? I understand illegal immigration is a problem, but it's a whole lot easier to reach these people when you don't have to get a visa to go into their country. Like, what are we doing? Why aren't we down at all the refugee camps? 
Like, like, where are these people that are migrating into our country? Where I understand that they shouldn't be here illegally. I understand that they shouldn't cross the border. I'm not for any of that. But, you know, all these lost and wandering people, they should be bumping into Christians saying, you know, welcome to our country. Here's a little welcome packet. Do you have any friends? Do you know anybody? We have this group that gets together every Sunday. Come on down here. We'll have a meal with you afterwards. The Muslims that are being converted right now to Christianity, they say, what is drawing us to Christianity is the love that the Christians showed us by becoming our neighbors when we migrated into their country. Because we've always been told that Christians are infidels, that Christians are this, that Christians are that. But what we experienced when we met these Christians is love and friendship. And we realized their God provided something for them that our God didn't provide for us. You understand that there are open doors everywhere. Yes, we're praying for open doors and God's like, open your eyes and you'll see my open doors everywhere. Okay, now, so all I wanted to do, uh, if, if you had 12 hours, I could talk, talk without taking a breath, and I would make you go, what? That? You're kidding. No. Wow. That's amazing. And not only me, this is happening all over the world. You know, in 1950, there were zero independent Baptist churches in the Philippines. The first missionaries went to the Philippines right after World War II when they had been there and saw the great need there. Do you know there are 24,000 independent Baptist churches in the Philippines now? From 1950 to 2020, 70 years, 24,000 independent Baptist churches. And you know what the Filipinos are doing? Scattering all around the world. Somebody told me this week that Mexico, independent Baptists in Mexico are sending more missionaries around the world than we are. You know what? God will send Mexicans. God will send Filipinos. God will send Fijians. And God will send you as well. But you get amongst these people. And there, so let me just briefly tell you, there's no shortage of miracles. There's no shortage of open doors. There's no shortage of power. God is well able to give you the wisdom in what to do. But one last verse tonight. Oh, it's already 8.25. This will take me five minutes. So you get back from Africa and you go for three or four hours. And so you come back to America and you're like, wind it back to the American, like, uh, you know. Philippians 4. Philippians chapter number 4. Paul writing to the Philippians. And Paul said, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Meaning they wanted to do more, but, you know, keeping in touch with Paul was tough. Like Paul, out, Paul outran the supply chain. So many times, like the, they didn't even know where he was. He kept moving so fast. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, what that that passage Paul is saying, he said, God gave me a commission. God gave me a task. And I am grateful, Philippians, 
that your sacrifices, your offerings have made it to me and have enabled me to do what I'm doing. And when you couldn't, when you didn't have the opportunity and when I had nothing, God still took care of me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Like the, the, the success of this is Christ. He says, notwithstanding, you have done well that you did communicate with my affliction. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desired a gift, but I desired fruit that may abound to your account. And I think you understand this, that um, some of you will never get on an airplane. It will not be the will of God for every one of you in this place to get on an airplane and go. I, when I was up in Kent, there were, there were two young ladies that wanted to go to with us in Fiji, but, but God clearly said to one girl, no. And that girl wept and wept and cried that God told her, no, she couldn't go. And I'm like, God, thank you. Most people weeping, weep and cry when God says they have to go. But you know what? It, it, it should break your heart when God says, no, I, I need you to stay. And I need you to be the supporting prayer and finance behind those that are going. And it should make you sad that you're not on the front line, but it should make you happy to be part of that from here. He says, but I, I, he said, I want fruit to abound to your account. Those who give and go are equal. There's an equality amongst that. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full having received of Epaphroditus, the things which were sent from you. It's amazing how much of the Bible is missions, by the way, when you, when you read it. Receiving of Epaphroditus, the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I hear all kinds of people claim that verse that cannot claim that verse. The context of that verse is where Paul said, ye Philippians, you carried me. Your care and your sacrifice that you made so that the gospel could get to where it needed to go is a sacrifice well-pleasing to God, a sweet-smelling odor to our God. And my God will supply all your need because your sacrifice has furthered the cause of Christ. You know what? There are some people that have never, ever been to Fiji, but they paid for these. They're, 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 I don't know. They say that this Pearl's, this Pearl's project cost over a million dollars in order to get those books and the people who came. And there are people who've never been to Fiji, but we got the books in our hand, and they gave us the tool that opened the door to a nation. We couldn't have done this without the tool that they put in our hand. And I promise you, every kid that gets saved because of this book and that gospel message and our presentation, I'm not the only one getting fruit for that. I am being carried by that sweet-smelling sacrifice that was by somebody else. And God says, to you who've made that happen, my God shall supply all your needs. I know a lot of greedy people who claim that verse, whose life is not a sacrifice. Now, in 2 Corinthians 8, it's, it's not that time is not necessarily a missions offering. But in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul singles out these churches of Macedonia. 
And he says, I do you to wit the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Please pay attention to that. There are certain churches that God pours his grace on in a different measure than other churches. He said, I do you to wit. He means pay attention to the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. He says how that in a great trial of affliction and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. He says, for I bear them record to their power, yea, and beyond their power. They were willing of themselves. And this they did by first giving themselves to God and then to us by the will of God. And this is what God says. He said, and you look at the Philippians. From the very day the gospel came to them, their life came about getting the gospel around the world. And as a body, they begin to sacrifice everything they had and everything they were for the cause of Christ. And they were fueling the gospel ministry by the people that they sent and by the resources that they sent. And that church from them sounded out the word of God around the world. And God said, see that church? See that church where everything about them is the gospel to the world? Their, their, their bodies, their resources, everything they have is given to me. Now, what they've given to me is not enough to get the job done. But I will accept the offering, and then I will pour my grace upon it. And Paul said, what did Paul say? He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, and his grace, which bestowed upon me, was not in vain, and he said, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So you know what God says? God says, it's going to be by my grace. It's going to be by my power. But I am not going to give my grace, and I'm not going to give my power to a people that doesn't give everything they are to me. But the people who will bow their life down and say, God, everything that I am and everything that I have is at your disposal for this work. Lord, I give it everything. And it said they gave beyond their power. Like they, like they gave unreasonably to this. And God said, I will take that sacrifice right there, and then I will pour my grace upon it, and my grace will multiply a thousandfold the little sacrifices that they made. It is not about the least you can do. That Christianity that says, well, you know, I know I've not done what he did and what they did, but at least I, and I'm like, man, you got to underscore, highlight that little statement. At least I. God doesn't want your least. He doesn't want your best. He wants it all. He wants it all. So this is your opportunity, church. This is your opportunity. When you give it all, all means like not just your physical resources. You know what you're going to have to give? All your ideas. All the way you think it has to go. Your reputation. Your dreams, 
your plans, your future. Three weeks ago, three, three months ago, I sat down with my family. Finally, after all these years, we, we got our, like, the forever home. And then God told my wife, leave it. Leave it. And my wife said, okay. There's a great song. I wish we could sing it tonight. And it, 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 the basic words, it says, this journey is my home. Hey, you know that song that we sang? It goes something like, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Why don't we actually try that? Why don't we just let go of everything? Why don't we put it all at God's disposal? Why don't we be like radical? Why don't we be like crazy? Like, is eternity worth it? Is the souls of man worth it? Is the salvation of the world worth it? Like, what are you going to hold on to? What, what are you going to grab in that hand and say, God, you can have this and you can have that, but you can't have that. Why not give it all? Why not test God at this? Why not say, God, okay, if you're God, then I'm going to put everything I am and everything I have at your disposal, and my answer to everything you say will only ever be yes. Doesn't have to make sense. Doesn't have to please everybody. It just needs to be directed from God. Wow. This church right here, this group right here, this body, this assembly. If God decided to pour his grace on this church, this church would turn the world upside down. You say, but who are we? It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who he is, the great and the mighty God. And I want to leave you this one parting thing. You only get to live this life once. So why not just don't be normal? Why not be New Testament radical? Like, why not say, you know what, I get to, what's the worst thing that can happen? I might die. Well, you are going to die later anyway. If you end up dying a little bit early, why not go out with a gusto, like doing the gospel or something like that? I got, I, I, you know, we have a young man who died, came back from Sierra Leone last year. Died, got malaria, cerebral malaria, and he died. You know what? Before he went on that trip to Sierra Leone, I think he's 17 or 18 years old. Elijah was his name. His brother came to him and said, Elijah, don't go. Please don't go. Elijah, they've got malaria there. You could die of malaria. Please, Elijah, don't go. Go somewhere else where there's not malaria. And you know what Elijah said to his brother? He said, if I went there and died of malaria, this is what he said. He said, it would be worth it if it was carrying the gospel. Now all these youth are wearing these T-shirts. I think it said something like, it'll be worth it or something like that. It w I promise you at the judgment seat of Christ, yeah, right. exactly. the judgment seat of Christ, yep. you are not going to regret your sacrifices and what you emptied yourself up and what you gave to the Lord. I mean, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. You know, when we see the tempter being banished, you know who is going to rejoice the most when the tempter's banished? Those of us who've been fighting him our whole life, going against the gates of hell to get the gospel to the end of the world. The only battle most Christians face today is like temptation with pornography on the internet. Like, that's it. I'm like, why don't you go fight a real battle like taking the gospel to the Muslim world? Like, why not go for a real battle somewhere sometime?
All right, Father, thank you for tonight, and thank you, Lord, for this uh, this time together.